Son, the Holy Ghost. Amen. Saint Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. Saint Thomas Aquinas, Saint Joseph, in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Very happy we celebrate your and that Saturday today give me more time to well to get ready this morning after a week away. So, um, we continue our series of Australia Faith Talk this morning with the uh, fourth article regarding the passion of Jesus and in particular the question of the passion at Gethsemane. So uh, by the next uh, next month we'll, uh, we will study the passion of Jesus at the Calvary, which is slightly different. So for, to understand this uh, question of the passion of Jesus, we have to refer to the liturgy of Advent first of all, because the passion of Christ, when the creed said suffered under Pontius remember sort of mentioned this question of under-conscious pilot. Um, I would say under-conscious pilot, uh, if you remember what we said in October, under is refers to the, the history, the historical time. So at the time of conscious pilot, uh, rather than under as subject to conscious as if Pontius Pilate had the whole entire power upon, on, on Christ. We, we must remember that Christ was assumed as human nature, well, the second person of the Blessed Trinity assumed second human nature because of uh, to uh, fulfill the will of the Father. This is very uh, much developed in the liturgy of Advent. You formed, uh, you formed me a body of flesh, you gave me flesh to fulfill your will. So this is, that's the reason of the incarnation of Christ, and there is no reason for the incarnation without the passion. So you cannot uh, separate the passion of Jesus from his incarnation. There are two um, reasons for the incarnation of Christ, as we know, two traditions, two understandings of the passion of Jesus. The first is because of our sins, the second is for, for the glory of men. So we can approach both things. Uh, so for the, the forgiveness of our sins, he was made flesh. So this is the reason St. Thomas of Aquinas grasped mainly for the, uh, the forgiveness of, of our sins to prepare what Adam and Eve had uh, spoiled uh, at, the, at the very origin, so suffered under conscious pilot. So we uh, must remember that Christ decided to live 
his passion. That was a decision of Jesus. First of all, this is most important. He was. He didn't just. He was not just submit to the will of Pilate, but he was to subject to the will of the Father. First of all, that's why the suffering of Jesus is first and mainly a suffering of heart and soul. Beyond the sufferings, the atrocious sufferings of the flesh, the suffering of Christ, the invisible sufferings of wounds of Christ are immense, although invisible. We see here the very core and how we approach the question of living our own passion. When we suffer, we know the deepest sufferings we have in life, our deepest crosses, they are lived within our soul, not just outside. And there is a certain sort of correction to make here. When we want to follow Jesus Christ in his passion, the first question is to understand how, or the first means to uh, follow him is how do I follow him? So what's the, the best means? And obviously, it's not just the physical sufferings, which are sort of windows open to a deeper one. So we follow Jesus Christ in his passion, mainly and primarily because of our crosses, the crosses of our hearts and our soul, first of all. If we want to seek this, the perfection, we need to seek or to uh, offer our su the sufferings of our hearts, first of all, the spiritual sufferings, before our physical sufferings. And this is most important for us. Otherwise, if we only concentrate on the physical sufferings, we do not understand why, why in terms of penances and etc., which are extremely good to take control of our body, and to show our body we are in control and we decide what we want to do. But mainly and primarily and deeply, the core of our passion, of our sufferings, is spiritual. And we know the I'd say the value of these sufferings. We know how what the kind of cleaning they bring to us. They clean us from the very bottom to the very top, don't they? And this is why they are so important for us. The other kind of penances or suffering we suffer outside are sometimes longer they are always limited, limited to, to the, the space of our body, or the limits of our body, but they are also limited by the limits of uh, time. They are. I mean, during this life. And here, we must also remember of the sufferings of the, uh, the souls who uh, are in hell. The deepest suffering, their deepest uh, pains, come from the, from the separation, the eternal, that is to say, illimited, and uh, in time and in space, it, uh, separation from God. This is the huge uh, suffering of damnation. And in addition to this, 
this, uh, this, 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 this suffering, this pain of the souls in hell, in addition, on top of this, is added after the resurrection of the body, the physical pains. But we do understand that we suffer because we've lost someone. And the price or the value or the amount of our suffering depends not only on our experience, but it depends on the, the person we betrayed or the good we have denied. And when the goodness, when the good is infinite and like to God, the pain is eternal. So this is that's the sort of a context of the suffering of Jesus in the Passion. He decides. This Passion was decided for from all eternity because God could see what the Son would have to accept. So in a sense, the, path, the Passion of Jesus at Gethsemane, if you read again the text, the path is, shows a kind of weakness of Jesus, but this weakness is decided. So the passion, the weakness of Christ is demonstrate or show uh, secondarily uh, the, uh, the power of Jesus. Because he could have run away from his enemies, but he's decided to stay under the power, the human power of Pilate and the priest of the synagogue. So uh, this, uh, the weakness of Christ is, as usual, uh, is the sort of the field where the, uh, the power of the grace of the divinity is shown and grows and bears fruit. He uh, surrenders himself, and this is a good teaching for us morally, when we surrender to someone else, that is to say, sometimes we need to accept someone else's will or wishes because they are secondary. They do not impact our eternal salvation or our eternal destiny. They know this uh, su submission would not, or this act of obedience would never ever sort of <coughs> ruin or stain or redirect our wish to uh, go to heaven, we follow Christ here. So we decide to accept someone else's wish because we know this is only secondary, because we know prim primarily, primarily it is God's will. And this one is just on the side. So uh, uh, and we know exactly uh, how often it happens in our life, don't we? We have to accept other things, but this is our passion. So if we like to find some kind of penances, first of all, we have to find out where we can submit ourselves to uh, others in unnecessary decisions. Unnecessary. That means to say, in this kind of, there are few options, and not necessarily our own solution, but someone else's, for instance. Um, and this is what Christ did. He could have done another way. He could have, he could have uh, 
redeem the world without living in this kind of sufferings but he decided to live this suffering because it came from the father's decision not from the son and he embraced completely and could embrace of course because he's God but he embraced the decision of the father and this is a good uh, the best approach on our, on our sufferings we embrace the decision of our father in heaven because we know this is good for us although humanly speaking it's sometimes almost unbearable and we would have not decided to go this way or to decide this way or to accept this uh, suffering of this sorrow if it had been our choice of course not but this is good because Christ because of this uh, act of uh, obedience because he surrenders himself to the will of the Father he and this is one of the another the second aspect of the passion of Jesus he shows a complete freedom he's absolutely free and this freedom leads him to a perfect act of love to the Father we all know there is no freedom no sorry, no charity, no love, no charity, but love in general. There is no love, humanly speaking, if we are not free to accept someone else's. No freedom, no love. And here, in this case, no freedom, that is to say, no decision, no charity in Christ. And he's completely free to accept. And this is the meaning of the very words of Jesus in the Passion. Not my will. May this chalice be removed. But this is sort of an approximate translation from Canon Mozart of the Gospel. But this is what he says. Remove this chalice away. But not my decision, my will, but your will. And you can see here the, here the balance between these two wills. So of course, here the balance is between the human will and the divine will in these few words, in this sentence. The will one, not my will, the first will is certainly not the divine will of Jesus, but this is the human will of Jesus which follows the, divin the divine decision. And here, the human nature is free to decide, yes, this is that is the core of the love of Jesus. His human nature suffers not uh, bodily, psychologically and morally, he suffers deeply. But there is a part of the very, the very depth of the human will of Christ do not suffer. There is a very small consolation in the passion of Jesus, although everything seems to be dark and painful, but there is a very, a very a, a, a consolation there, as I said. A, a consolation which is not seen, but in this sentence there is a small consolation where Jesus is consoled because he surrenders. He obeys. And this is the only consolation he gets from the passion 
follows the wake of the fire. And all the rest is desolation. All the rest. So, well, he is no help. So everybody has left him behind in the garden. His disciples, his beloved disciples, just for their priests and bishops. Um, and they, um, so, and he, uh, he um, also suffered even from all the consolation of the divinity in his human soul. And I've mentioned that last time, so I'm not going into this. But when he said, at, at the Gethsemane, he suffers not just what, the, what, what the, the apostles do, or the decision of the apostles, or the betrayal of the apostles, is exactly uh, shows, expresses the lack of consolation of the soul of Jesus. So the apostles as his friends are here to uh, show that every consolation has left his human soul. And he has decided to do so. So the apostles should be seen as a window inside the very soul of Jesus. And there is only one left who uh, will come back, who will return. So they all go away, they escape from the garden, but only John will come back. And so interestingly, Jesus will find a consolation in John because he is the very perfect model of the priests. And this is for us, not for you, but for us priests. We must be, and the Catholic priesthood must be, or the Catholic priest must be, the very first consoler, consoler of Jesus in his passion. And this is vocation. That's the grace he received, and this is why he should be faithful. So in other, in other words, if he is unfaithful, he is the world. He becomes the world because he's supposed to be the first to return. After a moment of, you know, uh, human challenge and uh, misunderstanding of the real divinity of Jesus and whatsoever, or lack of fidelity, he must be the first to return. Well before everyone, and this is by grace. In the meantime, the only faithful after uh, on, the, on the Good Friday at the cavern, we all know that his mother was close to him, so we cannot not remember the role of Our Lady and she guided this, and the role of the three Marys, the Holy Woman who were following him close, and they would never let him down. But the kind of this, the role of these women has to, to push the apostles to return to Jesus, to push the priests to return to him. And this is certainly a role which is uh, always uh, treasured in the church, isn't it? So everybody has a little role. And here it's most important. So the role of these women, three women, three Marys, plus Our Lady, who would console and encourage the, the new priests to be uh, 
faithful within or inside during the Passion of Jesus. <clears throat> so the effects of the uh, of, of the Passion of Gethsemane, one of the first thing is Christ is can I say bodily defied? Can we say that? He's lost his, the grace of his face because when he started to sweat blood, his face started to be maybe disfigured, can you say that? I don't know, I found the word defined, I don't know where, it doesn't make sense, yeah? Disfigured is better, isn't it? So this, the, 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 the sweating of blood is the beginning of the uh, defilement of the face of Jesus. He started to be disfigured. And we can read that even more intensely. It's not just a physical uh, sign of his deep suffering, but also this is the first fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 53. He would be placed at the very, as the very last of the human uh, being human person. And here we see the effect of the face of Jesus, one of the effects of the sin, and here he repairs by assuming one of the effects of the sin, not the sin. As we know, he's assumed the whole human nature, everything, even the very uh, the very small psychological uh, and, and, and the sensible and sensitive sensitivity of the human nature was extremely, can we say, sensitive to his sufferings. And here we can see that he somehow he, uh, he um, assumes or he shows how we do start to repair one of the consequences of the sin. He leaves the first act of the, his, his figure is somehow being desecrated. Somehow. It shows how the sin desecrates the soul. Not because of his soul. Don't get it wrong. Otherwise this is heretic. Christ never been touched by any sin at all. But he shows on his face for the very first time, the first minute of his passion, of the first hours of the passion of Jesus of Gethsemane, shows the desecration of the human soul, of the soul of the sinner. And this is why he allows this blood to sweat. We can explain that also with maybe with maybe some experts in medicine would explain why it could happen in for someone who is being uh, who suffers greatly so much it could happen. That's a small I don't know days or whatever would disperse and deliver blood. But here beyond the physical 
explanation which could be true, there's nothing wrong with this, but why does he decide to suffer this very specific physical pain? Because of the desecration. Can I say that? Is that a word? Thank you. Correct my English. Because of the desecration, and this is where we need to conceive and understand why seeing the same disfigures the, the, the soul, the human soul. So he starts to fulfill here the prophecies of, of, of the Old Testament there by the, the offering of our of the of the of his own blood. Um, so somehow here he um, he shows us the gravity. He shows us one of the, the gravity between God and us, as we can see it, as we can see our sins, it's a moral distance. I distance myself from God. Yes, but that's the, that's a problem, isn't it? But in the meantime, deeply and essentially, I desecrate the temple of the Holy Spirit. I was created to be perfect, to be, I've been consecrated by life, by birth, beyond my baptism. Life is, uh, is consecrated to, to the Creator, and I have decided to ignore that, and that this is and this is why the Passion of Christ is so encouraging for us, because you can see in both sides, first, one of the first thing is you can see how our, what, what, what the sin does in us, it disfigures us. But in the meantime, and this is a huge consolation, because he assumed this, and he shows us the, uh, that, that he, repairs for that entirely by assuming this consequence by showing this uh, uh, desecration he assumes our he tells us he's telling us don't worry if you come along again i will uh, clean your sins through my blood uh, this is a huge consolation to through the blood of jesus the first drop of blood wash the sin, the soul. And this beauty uh, is, uh, is, uh, is constant. Uh, <coughs> so God watched what Christ did at Gethsemane starts to show the intensity and the depth of this cleaning of the soul. Uh, it's a so the blood of Jesus doesn't stain. That's the point. It could bodily stain someone, but it cleans the soul. And this is where why we celebrate baptisms, because in the baptism the soul is immersed into the blood of Jesus. Well, not physically, of course. That would be strange. But in the water and inside the water, the blood of Jesus operates what happened at Gethsemane. 
the soul, the original sin, has disfigured the soul, maybe of a little baby, but through the passion of Jesus, the soul is sent and washed. So, uh, so this is so, so the passion is linked to the baptism. It's a sort of celebration, or a manifestation of this baptism in anticipation of the sacrament, the baptism when we go into the blood of Jesus and then we are uh, purified and the soul is again beautiful and purified but we have to go inside the blood of Jesus and when we have committed our own sins after our baptism we do the same we are immersed into the very blood of Jesus sacramentally or through our own uh, sufferings we are immersed into the blood of Jesus, and we are purified. <coughs> Christ um, is uh, also, has, as I said, expresses a kind of strength in the passion. He's strong. He looks humanly weak, but he's strong because he's in the actual control of his own life. As he said to his disciples, nobody takes my life from me, but I give my life to the Father, in other words, when I decide to do so. And this shows you the constant strength of Jesus in the passion, although everybody thought he was completely done, well, led into his passion, but he was not. And this is why this strength has never left him. And we see this in the very, well, I'll comment back later for the next time, between the, when he, is, he projects or he sort of shouts at the very moment he was about to die, he managed to us, into, in your hands I commit my soul. Um, and everybody is surprised because he he shouldn't have been, he didn't have enough physical strength to shout. This is not something we do, in particular in the kind of torment uh, he would have, he had, to, he, he had been uh, condemned. He, uh, uh, on the cross, the condemned is, uh, dies from lack of breathing. He suffocates on the cross. That's, that's the, how they die. Because they cannot lift their body, so they cannot breathe. Uh, they could no longer breathe. And, and this is why they are so surprised. Not only because it was about to expire, but also because of the kind of death he should have uh, been. He should have. Uh, gone through. So this shows, and this strong voice of Jesus is the sign of his constant and unchanged divine strength that never left him. And uh, so thus the first, the very, very first aspect of the, the passion of Jesus is 
it is very uh, fine balance between human weakness but decided and divine strength. Finally, the Passion of Gethsemane is the first time when Christ shows that, and this is a positive note again, he shows that the, um, the sin is, uh, is uh, well, the, the punishment for the sin is now all fulfilled. So it's done. So he has assumed all the consequences, most of the consequences of our sins, uh, all this suffering for, in regards to the justice of God. And here, there was a need of the justice. Not justice, not the term just of punishment, but the justice of God had to be repaired and restored. There was something unjust for thousands years between the original fall and the passion of Jesus. And Jesus, he's the only one who was able to um, sort of live uh, this eternal punishment to assume and to repair this. Because the punishment is always in proportion to the guilt, to the nature of not only the nature of the, uh, the, the offence, but the justice is first, comes from the nature of the person offended. For, for instance, it's not, uh, it's not the same I'm deliberately giving you an extreme example. It's not the same to misbehave in the streets or misbehave in a church. Just put whatever you think in misbehaving, okay? But you understand the difference. It's not the nature of the offense. The offense is the same. You are doing outwardly, you are doing exactly the same in two these two places, but the very nature of the place, the, 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 the sacred place, adds uh, a further or a deeper guilt because there is sacrilege there. So the nature of and, and is the house of God, so we offend God in his very own place where he stays at the, the tabernacle, as opposed outside. I know we should never ever misbehave on the street, that's for sure. But you can see the nature, that well, the, the guilt is different. So we offend God, and here we are, so, so Adam and Eve, the offense to God from Adam and Eve was infinite. But this is something difficult for us to understand. It was limited in time, one decision against God, but it was infinite because of the infinite nature of, of God, of course.
Um, I believe if you insult someone, don't do that. Because you are angry. It's not the same to do this with your someone in your family or the queen. It's the same, you're using the same language probably, but the nature of the person, the quality of the person is different. So the pain, would, the punishment would be certainly different. Certainly. On the, second, on the first level, your parents or your family members will tell you off and say, don't do that again. In the second case, I think, unless rules have been lifted, but I think you might or you, 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 you will go to court. Maybe court by the police, you go to court, and you'll be severely punished because of the quality of the person there. I'm not saying that you should insult your brothers and sisters or parents or whatever. That's not but but, but, the, but the, the the punishment is different. It's related to your to the quality of the person here. So here you've got the uh, so at the original sin, this is exactly what it is. It's not the very nature of the act, which is an act of rebellion, but that could be repeated later. But here, the guilt is infinite because God is infinite, is infinitely offended, and secondly, because Adam and Eve had a better understanding of the nature of God than we do. We don't, we would not see God as they used to in before the fall. They had a sort of a friendship as we've seen in the scripture. They were in a friendly relationship with, with, with God, sorry, with God in the garden. But this friendship was not the beatific vision face to face. It was not supernatural. It was natural, so uh, Adam and Eve would walk in the garden in the presence of God. Okay. So the text is interesting because it shows that it was naturally, it was natural for them to be in the presence of God, but they had to be tested, challenged, make an act of supernatural love, which would immediately lead them to supernatural vision of God, not just as their creator, that's the natural vision, but as God, as their redeemer, as their God who would grant them the supernatural life, which is different. So here, uh, yes, yeah, so in, in the first instance, they would see God in the garden before the original sin as uh, a philosopher, would perfectly see the cause of his life. Naturally. You say, yes, this person is God, or this is the cause of my life. This is why I'm here. This is why I'm here. He is the cause of my life. And they got that. We don't really. It, it, it's always blurred for us because of this. So Adam and Eve, they have come to God as infinite, but the guilt was infinite. The punishment had to be fulfilled, so the reparation had to be infinite. 
And an infinite preparation is impossible unless you are God. And this is the reason of the passion of Jesus. He knows that if he doesn't do it, nobody is going to do it. So for the love of men, he accepts the punishment due to Adam and Eve and due to us. So he accepts this punishment in proportion to the guilt. <coughs> so um, this is why the first epistle of St. Peter says, who his own self brought out sins in his body upon the tree. Christ, his own self, bore our sins in his body upon the tree. So our sins, so that is the punishment due to sin, his own self bore in his body. So the, the passion of Christ is the only uh, is, the, is, is the only uh, event, historical event, which could suffice, suffice, first one or second one, <laughs> thank you, suffice to expiate for us. Yeah, because we say sufficient and we say suffice. Go ahead. Oh, oh. I got confused. Anyway, sorry. And uh, you see here the power of the word. And I would and conclude on that. During the passion of Jesus, he stays quiet all the time. Because to prepare for your guilt or any guilt, or any sin, or any offence, there is only one word to say. Sorry. That's it. And this word, sorry, was assumed into Christ. So he didn't need to multiply the, the words during his passion. And this is one of the reasons of the silence of Jesus, of course. One, one of the reasons, uh, remote reasons, would be the fulfillment of uh, Isaiah again. He would be led to uh, his torture and condemnation like a lamb, a quiet lamb. But here, the word is incarnate. The word of which would uh, repair for the guilt is infinite. So he doesn't need to use uh, human words to express this contrition of the humankind. So he assumes our contrition in his passion by in a human silence but a divine word. And this is really important. Because we know that Everything, all his passions, his suffering, sorry, are assumed as sustained by his divinity, by this word. They are a sort of a, they multiply the expression, or the, 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 the ways of reparation for this infinite guilt, but by essence, because of 
the, the very nature, the very infinity of this guilt, there is only one word, is need. So he doesn't say sorry, but he is this word. He is. Uh, so, and, and, and this is where we can see and we can live the passion of Jesus. So, we don't need to multiply them, and sometimes we need to repair in silence. But not in our human relationship, because we need to express this uh, contrition, don't we? Uh, we express, we must say, I am sorry, I have been wrong, I am sorry. We need to say it. We verbalize, we word it, because this is our nature. And this is needed in justice towards others. It's not, a, not an act of mercy, but it's a, an act of very, a very act of mercy. I'm sorry, this is just to say it, this is right to say it, and this is not a, an option. When we've harmed someone, we must say sorry. If we don't, we've missed something. We don't repair it sufficiently. But in Christ, it doesn't need it, to be able to assume and to repair for the infinite. Uh, the human words are not enough. They would, they would not cover that. But the divine word is able to do so. So, so the second, the word of God is not the word sorry, as you can imagine, because that's a human word made of syllables. But the word of God assumes, is able to assume it and sort of infuses this divine strength, this divine mightiness in the passion to repair in proportion for, for the guilt of Adam and Eve. This is why Christ is quiet in his passion. Thank you for your attention. Uh, I leave you in peace now. You've been very good. I hope you're not freezing. <laughs> it's a little well, it's fresh. It's cool. It's fresh. Uh, so in January uh, we will continue part two of the Passion of Jesus um, from Pilate to Calvary. Thank you. In the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Glory be to the Father, of the Son, to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall, world without end. Amen. Saint Peter, Paul, and Saint Philomena, Our Lady, help us Christians, the Sacred Heart of Jesus. In the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Ghost.